The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. I've had on my mind for a while to go through the Gospel of John, and I hope, Lord willing, to make our way over there to the Gospel of John and go through that in an expository manner, going verse by verse. And part of uh, what I try to do when we begin a book to consider in an expository way, by way of introduction, I usually try to consider some of the uh, background and the character traits of the author. Uh, so in doing that, uh, I'm going to take a little bit different approach than I normally do. In somewhat of an extended introduction to the Gospel of John, I would actually like to consider a topical survey of the epistle to 1 John. So the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John and 1, 2, and 3 John, as well as the book of Revelation. And I believe that we can very easily see that the Gospel of John has very similar topics, very similar themes as the epistle to 1 John. And uh, I think that we can learn a lot by way of introduction and preparing our minds to study the Gospel of John, I believe we can learn a lot by trying to consider 1 John, all right? But I, I say that we're going to try to consider somewhat of a topical survey of 1 John because uh, 1 John is one of those books that is a little bit more challenging to preach in an expository way, uh, but it also preaches or, or teaches the same kind of themes that are presented in the overall Gospel of John, okay? So we'd like to just give some introductory remarks to the topical survey of 1 John this evening. Again, trying to make our way and kind of set the foundation and stir your thoughts and your mind toward Lord willing, making our way to going through the Gospel of John. So uh, as we try to consider the author to the Gospel of John, it is the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, right? He's the one who came before Jesus as the forerunner to preach uh, repentance and bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. He's the one that began to baptize. And, and then he had a relatively short ministry, honestly, and then pointing toward Jesus. And then he ended up literally losing his head uh, because of speaking out against Herod and his inappropriate relationship. So this is the Apostle John. And we look at God's calling, Jesus' calling of the 12 apostles, and we find that John and James were both the sons of Zebedee. They were brothers who were called. They were fishermen, just like Peter and Andrew were fishermen. Look here in Mark chapter 3, he's introducing the 12, the 12 apostles that he chose, and he lists them off here in Mark chapter 3 and verse 17. He ordained them in verse 14, commanded them to go forth and preach, and he lists off all of the, the apostles, and he uh, introduces these two brothers here in verse 17. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. So these were pretty bold guys, it seemed like. Uh, it seemed like they may have had a very bold, energetic, 
loud personality, the sons of thunder. And I think we see a little bit of, of John's personality come out in a couple other instances uh, that we find over here in Luke chapter 9. So we have these two brothers, and James was a very important apostle. He ends up losing his life in Acts chapter 12, being slain by Herod, a later Herod, actually, not the same Herod that, that took the life of John the Baptist. But uh, they were both central figures in the early establishment of the church, and Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder, all right? So that was Jesus' nickname for them. And we find a little bit of that disposition here in Luke chapter 9. He calls them to go out and sends them out to cast out devils and to preach in his name. And Jesus is trying to show them the, the humility that should be exhibited in the kingdom of God here in verse 48 of Luke chapter 9. Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me. He goes on to say later, uh, well, actually the end of that verse, he that is least among you, the same shall be great. He tells them in another place, except you be converted and become as little children that uh, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven or press into the church kingdom. But it seems that James and John uh, at a later date, got their mother involved. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest of the apostles. And then, I think they were all kind of jumping in there, like, like all of us do. We're sinful people. And, no, I'm going to be number one. I'm going to be first in all this. But then there finally came a time that, bless their heart, <laughs> James and John recruited their mother to ask Jesus, who's going to be the greatest of the kingdom? So it sounds like, possibly, that they may not have been the most humble guys in the world. Kind of, kind of a loud, energetic, bombastic personality, the sons of thunder, trying to recruit their mom to become vice presidents in Jesus' kingdom. And then we have Jesus trying to show them the, the childlike humility that you really need to have in the kingdom. But then John says here in Luke chapter 9 and verse 49, and John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followed not with us. So John's perspective was, you either follow us or we are going to shun you. We're going to cast, call down fire from heaven, he says in a couple of verses later. But Jesus says, listen, John, I, 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 I'm thankful for your zeal. I'm thankful for your sons of thunder zeal. But you have the wrong perspective. He said, there was one that was casting out devils and we forbid him. We, we, we rebuked him and he should have followed him, no doubt, right? I mean, if he's a child of God, he should have followed Jesus. But John had the wrong perspective. Jesus rebukes him and says, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. You know, John thinks uh, here in this moment that anyone that's not 100% all on board like I am, then they're not a true disciple. They're not a real child of God. So I'm going to rebuke you to your face. And John and, and Jesus says, No, that's actually the wrong perspective. Anyone that's not actively against us is actually for us. You know, not that you got to be on my side, and if you don't, you're against me. No, actually, if you're not, this world, we, we haven't seen it as much in New Testament, uh, especially Americanized Christianity, but this world is against us. This world hates us because they hated Christ. So if someone is not actively hating you, then he says, look, they're for you in a sense, all right? Then he goes on to say, they went to some other places and they preached to them, but they did not receive them. I mean, I appreciate John's zeal, the sons of thunder zeal, 
But he says here that they did not receive him. And then when his disciples, verse 54, James and John saw this, these brothers, these sons of thunder, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did? So John's perspective with all of his zeal, he said, look, you either get on board or we're going to call down fire from heaven. Which, by the way, you see that. That zeal and that, uh, it, may have, it may have been toned down a little bit in his later life, but it wasn't gone. That sons of thunder nature was not gone because you read John's, John's epistle that we're going to consider in First John. And I'll tell you, it is you are either for us or against us. You are of God or you are of the world. You believe in Jesus or you're the spirit of Antichrist. I mean, there was no middle ground with John. And I appreciate that zeal. I appreciate that zeal. But also that, that zeal needs to have a little bit of humility with it too. <laughs> Certainly not to call down fire from heaven to consume people every time they're struggling. I mean, again, I get his perspective. I get his zeal. There's a man that should have followed Jesus and he rebuked him. You know what? He needs to be rebuked, but he needs to be rebuked in love, first of all. But then there were, uh, gives the impression that these were not just there apparently there were some children of God in this group that didn't receive him. And then John's perspective was not for me to labor with them and lovingly encourage them to believe the truth. Instead, Lord, give me the power to call down fire from heaven and burn them up right now. <laughs> That's not the right perspective for a preacher, is it? <laughs> That's not the right perspective for a pastor. Is Lord, give me the power to burn people up that don't agree with me. No, no, John. Now, by the end of his life, by the end of his life, the Apostle John is known as actually the Apostle of Love, right? He's described in many places in his own gospel. He speaks of himself in the third person, the Apostle uh, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he laid his, his head upon the breast of Jesus with that close, intimate communion and love that he had for God and the love that he had for Jesus. And then he speaks very, uh, very much of love, uh, being the Apostle of Love in all three of his epistles in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So by the end of his life, he did have, you know, we're called to speak the truth, but speak the truth in love, and he was the apostle of love. But John never lost that sons of thunder zeal. When you read that, when you read 1st John, I'll tell you, you still have that fire in his bones uh, that comes out in, in the writing there. Something I think that is pretty unique about the way that John writes his epistle, the way he writes the, the epistle of 1 John, is he has that for, he still has that for us or against us kind of attitude. Now, it's seasoned with a little bit more of love and humility as the years have aged John. And also an important point about John is he had that zeal and he had that great communion with Jesus and he loved Jesus. But also, he was the only one of the apostles. Now, Peter denied Jesus three times, and when he was arrested, all, all of them fled. All of them fled, including Peter, but, but all the other ten at that time. Judas betrayed him. Eleven were left. The other ten, the other ten fled. Uh, but the only one that came back, though, the only one that came back, the only one that was at the foot of the cross with Mary was John. Remember that? And he tells John, the apostle John, Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. And he took her, took her into his own house from that day forward. So we see John's commitment. And then we find that John is the only disciple, the only apostle 
that actually died a natural death. All of the other ones died in martyrdom of being slain for the cause of Christ for preaching the gospel. But John dies as an old man on the Isle of Patmos, exiled for preaching the gospel after that amazing revelation that we find in the book of Revelation that the Lord saw fit to give him. So this is later in his life. He's seasoned. He has uh, seen all of the rigors of this world and the rigors of the ministry. And he still has that zeal. And I think it's also important to note that John is the same apostle that was used to pen the book of Revelation. Now, this was Jesus speaking to the seven churches of Asia. But John was the man that was used to pen the words of Jesus to Laodicea. So John knew exactly how vehemently Jesus Christ detest lukewarm discipleship, right? The church of Laodicea, I will spew you out of my mouth. God detests lukewarm discipleship. And you have that kind of hatred, for lack of a better word, of lukewarm discipleship that it is time, the Old Testament prophecy, that there was a plumb line that was dropped and Jesus was the plumb line. Just put it in in modern day terms. It's put up or shut up time, okay? And the reason for that is because the Messiah has come. The Son of God has come. And you are either, you still have that attitude, you're either for us or you're against us. You're on Christ's side or you're on the world's side. And he says this here in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. You know, there's no gray area with John. You read this, the epistle of 1 John, and all of his statements are that stark. And if, you, if this is all you had in the Bible, you know, sometimes the primitive Baptist and those that believe in election and the sovereignty of God in salvation are accused that we think there's only going to be us four, no more in heaven. There's only a few people in heaven. Well, that's not true. God has a multitude, which no man can number out of every nation, kindred, people, and tongue, right? But if all you had of the Bible was 1 John, it feel like it was about four people going to be in heaven. Because I'll tell you, there is, no, uh, there is no compromise with John. And I appreciate that zeal, but there's other verses that give us more context of some of the things that he said. But I think one of the reasons, though, I think this is what's so important, is to understand the right setting in which... Uh, epistles are written uh, is because during this day that John was writing both the gospel of John and all three of his uh, follow-up epistles were directly combating the heresy of Gnosticism okay and that primarily taught that Jesus Christ was not the eternal divine son of God okay that matter is evil and there's a sense in which Uh, I I can understand a perspective that this world is sinful, this world is corrupt, and there's no way that a God that is perfectly holy and divine could come into this world and truly be God. That is that that holy and perfect and pure. But they went to such a degree to say that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God. And I want you to understand that the primary context, the primary setting that this was written in was not the same Christian culture that we have today where you have all these different denominations that they're all very sincere and you have 
Baptist, and then among the heading of Baptist, you have Southern Baptist, and you have Missionary Baptist, and Independent Baptist, and Primitive Baptist, and then you have Methodist, and you have Presbyterian, and you have all these different types of denominations where they're all good, sincere children of God. Some of them probably don't have as much understanding of the scriptures that they need to, but they're all sincere children of God that love the Lord. And they're trying to serve God to the best of their ability with the knowledge they have at the moment. But in this day, in the first century, it was not this large group of godly Christian people that love the Lord, that disagree about doctrinal points, that disagree about practice. During this day, it was either Jesus Christ or paganism. There was no middle ground. And that's why John writes. That's why we have to understand the context in which things were written. There was no middle ground here because in this day, there was no middle ground. There was no different denominations. It was either Jesus Christ and the one true church, or it was the world, or it was paganism. And there is no middle ground between Jesus Christ and pagan idols. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground between the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and then what he calls the spirit of Antichrist. There's no middle ground there. But understand, he wrote in a much different environment and in a much different setting than we are used to in Christianity today where there's a lot of very sincere people that love the Lord that, in a sense, we can agree on many principles, but we can't fellowship with them as closely as we desire to many times because of some certain doctrinal points that we disagree on. But in this day, it was either the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Antichrist. It was either their belief on the Son of God or paganism and hedonism. Okay? That's the environment in which this was written. I'd like to go to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And this is the theme, this one verse right here. And Lord willing, when we make our way back to the Gospel of John, uh, we really want to focus on this because this is the theme of the entire Gospel of John, and I believe you could say to a large degree that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are almost an exposition, a sermon exposition of the same principles we find in the Gospel of John. So I think one is an extension of the other. But he says here in John chapter 20 and in verse 31, this is the theme of the entire Gospel of John. And, and the, you may have noticed uh, as you've read the Bible, that the Gospel of John is written much differently than the, uh, than the other three Gospels, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels. They normally follow more of a narrative, chronological flow of following Jesus' life, and there's a sense in which it's still narrative and chronological in John's Gospel, but he focuses on other stories and other miracles that are not in the other Gospels. The reason for that, the reason for the distinction between the Gospel of John and the other uh, three Gospels is because it was written for a specific purpose to combat the Gnostic heresy. It was written for a specific purpose to, without any shadow of a doubt, to perfectly defend the divinity of Jesus Christ. Because that's what was under attack. 
was that Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God and the Holy Spirit moved John in such a way to write a gospel to defend beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God for the purpose that God's children would not be enticed by false doctrine, but to believe that Jesus is the eternal divine Son of God. And that's the purpose of this gospel. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, But these are written... Why was this written? Why did the Holy Spirit move John to write this gospel in a very unique way from the other three gospels? But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now, is he offering eternal life there? Well, if you read the gospel of John, one thing you're going to find is that belief is not the cause of eternal life. It is the evidence of eternal life, right? And, and that is just black and white, unequivocal in the Gospel of John and in the red letters in the Gospel of John, the words of Jesus. But he wrote this Gospel for the purpose that these believers, and us today as well, would be adequately defended of our belief that Jesus Christ is... Which, by the way, isn't that the first requirement for baptism into the Lord's Church, Right? What, what did he say the eunuch was required to confess? Here's water. What doth hinder me baptized? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe it, all right, let's baptize you. Now, like I said, this is a lot different environment in the first century than we're in today because you need to profess a little bit more to join the Primitive Baptist Church than just I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? A lot different environment. But that is the first step into joining the Lord's church, right? Is professing that Jesus is the Son of God. So why did the Holy Spirit inspire this in this way? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. To be confidently assured of the divinity of Jesus Christ. And that believing you might have life through his name. Another very important theme, both in the Gospel of John and in 1 John, is the abundant life. It's laying hold on eternal life. It's experiencing real joy and real peace in the abundant life. And there is no greater uh, ability to lay on, uh, lay hold of that abundant life than by belief, right? Than by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing that, you should join the Lord's church. We see the very same kind of language. That's in John chapter 20 and verse 31. That is the theme of the Gospel of John. But then we find very similar language in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. These things have I written unto you. So for what purpose is one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit moved John to write this apostle in this, uh, moved the apostle to write the epistle in this way. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So it's important to mesh these kind of verses together, right? Over here in John it says, in that believing you may have life through his name. Well, that's not eternal life. There's other verses that teach us that. But actually we find over here, these things I write unto you, people that already believe. Right? I'm writing unto you that you already believe. No, but why am I trying to encourage you? That you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing unto you, 
And I'm preaching the gospel unto you so that you can have assurance. You are secure in the hand of God. And that is taught so clearly. Eternal security is taught so clearly in the gospel of John that none can take uh, pluck any of God's sheep out of the hand of the Father. No, no, no child of God is going to be lost from the hand of the Father. But do you feel that security? Do you know you have eternal life? Do you feel that peace and the assurance that the gospel gives you? You already believe, but I want you to have eternal security and assurance of salvation. You already believe. I want you to have assurance and that you may believe. You believe right now. I want you to have assurance and I want you to keep on believing, right? Keep on walking steadfastly. Now, we'd like to look at quite a few different uh, topics related to this and I just want to give you a broad overview of some of those to hopefully stir your mind as we go through this topical survey of 1 John. It's common themes that are in 1 John that are also heavily portrayed in the Gospel of John as well. First of all, a few verses uh, that describe the purpose of 1 John being written. 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 4, These things write we unto you. He's describing his stated purpose of writing. So why did he write these things? These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Jesus said the exact same thing in John chapter 15. Again, it's close parallels between 1 John and the Gospel of John. He said, uh, these things I say unto you that your joy may be full and that my joy may remain in you. I mean, that's why God gave us the Word. The Word of God is not to give us rules uh, and fences to keep us from having any fun. No, your greatest joy in this world will be within the bounds of God's word and within the bounds of the kingdom. I write these things unto you that your joy may be full. Chapter 2 and in verse 1. My children, these things write I unto you. What's his stated? Stated purpose. That ye sin not. Holiness, righteousness, godliness, serving the Lord faithfully. My children, these things I write unto you. That you sin not. He says a couple verses before that, now, don't start thinking. He's, he, again, he has some very stark statements that if you sin, you are not of God. Oh, hold up now. We sin every day, right? But if any man say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in you. You see? So you really have to rightly divide a lot of what these stark statements that the Apostle John says in here. But if any man sin, I'm writing unto you to encourage you to not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with Jesus Christ, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the propitiation for our sins. You do sin, you have an advocate, and you have a, a sacrifice that's been made on your behalf. Chapter 2 and verse 26. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. I'm writing th these things unto you to encourage you and strengthen you because there's people coming in, the spirit of Antichrist, that he addresses in chapter 4 that are trying to entice you to believe a false gospel. Okay, So he's encouraging them and strengthening them. And then we find there that we've already read in chapter 5 and in verse 13, I write these things unto you that you may know you have eternal life, to provide assurance of eternal life, and then that you may believe, to keep on believing and to remain steadfast. Okay, a few important themes that are in 1 John that we see very heavily in the Gospel of John as well is life, right? Jesus is the way, the truth, 
and the life. There in the first uh, chapter of the Gospel of John, it goes all the way back to creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and Him was life. It goes on to say there, talking about creation, Jesus was there in the midst of creation, and it was God saying, and Jesus is the Word of God, so that's Jesus speaking, if you will. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And then it describes Him in John chapter 1 as the light, the capital L light, the true light that came into the world. Well, same language is used, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of you and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then it also talks about life and light and walking in fellowship with God. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. He talks earlier there in the beginning of the epistle about fellowship that we have with Jesus in the abundant life. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes. He's talking about the physical body of Jesus that I touched the son of God. I heard the voice of the son of God. Verse 2, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and we bear witness unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifest unto us, but that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that's when he says, these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. What he's saying right there is that in the gospel of John, you see instances where I physically touch the Son of God incarnated. Apostle John laid his physical head upon the physical bosom of Jesus Christ. But he's wanting the church now to understand that in a spiritual sense, you can have that same fellowship with Jesus. Isn't that something? Isn't that something to think about? That you can have the same spiritual fellowship with Jesus that in a spiritual sense you can lay your head upon the bosom of the Son of God just like John the Apostle did in a physical way when he was here on this earth. That's the kind of intimate fellowship that you can have with Jesus but there are some things that are necessary for that kind of intimate fellowship, isn't it? Belief, walking in the light, sinning not, walking in righteousness, Okay, life, light, love, no doubt, right? Love. This is, uh, especially chapter 4, is one of the most beautiful passages of the love of God where he actually takes this, this title and this identity for himself. In 1 John chapter 4, and verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God is love. He takes that title for himself. It doesn't actually use the capital L right there, but I believe we can easily say it. God is love, capital L, love. So, and we see that many times in the Gospel of John, don't we? For God so loved the world. He even describes there in John chapter 17 that uh, God loves us the same way that he loves Jesus Christ from before the foundation of the Lord. I want to turn over there and read that, because I'll tell you, I just stand in awe every time that I read this verse. And 
I just can't mention this without, without reading it. Verse 23 of John 17. I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. That, is, that just blows my mind. How is it possible that God could love a wretch like me the same way he loves his perfect son of God? You want to know how? By the imputed righteousness of that son of God, right? Then he goes on to say in verse 24, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And if he loves us the same way he loved Jesus, what does that mean? It means he loved us before the foundation of the world, right? God didn't choose to love you when you chose him. No, what does it tell us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19? We love him. Why? That's right. We love him because he first loved us. This beautiful theme and message of love. And obviously belief, right? Belief. That's the main theme of the entire book is belief. But the whole reason that we believe is because we've been born again. That's another important theme too, right? 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Is born of God. And doesn't that go exactly in line with what Jesus preached in his gospel in John chapter 5 and verse 24 particularly? But I mean, there are... It's all throughout the, the entire gospel, but this one is just so rock solid and clear. You can't, you can't debate this one at all. John chapter 5 and in verse 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is past, past tense, is past from death unto life. You see, the reason why we believe is because we've been born again. And what was the message that, uh, that Jesus gave uh, in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus? Marvel not, you must be born again. The reason why you believe is because you are born again, right? So the new birth. And then just simply godliness. I mean, that, that's the main theme, arguably the main theme of First John is that if you profess Christ, yes, you need to profess him and believe that he's the son of God. But also don't forget, hey, even the devils believe there's one God. Even the devils believe and tremble. But guess what? The devils, your actions should not resemble the same actions as the devil, right? That's why he says, look, you need to love one another. That's another common theme, not just the love that God has for us, but the love that we should have for one another. First John chapter 3 and in verse 14, we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Well, what's the last half of that verse? He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. <laughs> I tell you, those are the kind of verses that make me feel like that I'm going to hell, right? But no, praise God, Jesus, the blood of Jesus covers all of those sins. But that's the same message that he gave in John chapter 13. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. How? Because you love one another. And then you should live in a godly way. You should obey God's, God's commandments. 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know him. Why? If we keep his commandments, if we obey him. Now the other side of that, he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not him. I'll tell you, he does not have any stomach, any patience for lukewarm discipleship. 
Now, we need to be gentle, we need to be loving, and we need to encourage those who struggle, but I appreciate his zeal. I do. Verse 5, But whosoever keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Verse 6, He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Right? And that's, that's really, at the end of the day, that's what discipleship is all about. That's what righteousness is all about. That's what godliness is all about. All these exhortations. Be holy as I am holy. Discipleship is day by day us trying to conform our lives more closely to the pattern and the standard that Jesus Christ set. That's what he said right there. If you say you love God, then you need to walk the way that Jesus walked. You need to talk the way that Jesus talked. You need to love the way that Jesus loved. You need to exhibit the same kind of righteousness and godliness and love and humility, but also boldness and charity that the Son of God exhibited. We are called to walk in the same footsteps and pattern that Christ has walked as our perfect example. So this has been somewhat of an introductory Remarks to what we hope to be the pre-introduction to the Gospel of John of a topical survey, the first epistle of John that has many of the same themes, many of the same ideas, and, and I believe, hopefully, Lord willing, this will be beneficial for us, not just in this study, but also in, Lord willing, preparing our mind to better understand some of the topics that we hope to see in the Gospel of John. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.